Welcome again everyone to another Unsolved Cases from the U.S. video. Tonight we'll be focusing on three cases out of Mississippi. If you're wondering if a case or state has been covered, head to the playlist in the description and look for it there. We've been traveling in alphabetical order and are making some very good progress as of late. So, let's begin. Jessica's case begins in early December of 2014, and it was one that not only shocked Panola County residents, but the entire nation. Before the events of that December night, Jessica was said to be your average 19-year-old girl in Mississippi. She attended church on a regular basis, worked at a local department store, and was an incredibly social person. As a matter of fact, Jessica knew so many people closely, it became quite difficult to narrow down who the police should focus on. The night of the 5th, however, police focused only on Jessica. It was that night she had her life taken in such a bizarre way, her name was soon plastered over every news outlet, local and national. From the Clarion Ledger out of Jackson, Lisa Chambers said her daughter came home Friday night after ending her shift at Goody's department store in Batesville, where she had recently started working. She woke up Saturday morning for a little while, but went back to sleep for most of the day. Not long after waking up, Jessica Chambers drove to a gas station on Mississippi 51 to grab a bite to eat and put gas in her car before heading to Batesville to clean it. Jessica arrived at the gas station at 6.24 p.m., verified by surveillance tapes recovered from police. 24 minutes later, Jessica speaks with her mother over the phone, telling her that she was alone and that she'd see her soon. Just under an hour and a half later, the Panola County emergency personnel answered many calls about a car on Heron Road that was in flames. When they arrived, they saw Jessica walking away from the car, completely engulfed in flames. Jessica suffered burns to over 95% of her body. Amazingly, she was able to say a name, that being Eric, to the first responders, but as of now, this name has not been linked to anyone of interest. The following Sunday, at 2.37 in the morning, Jessica succumbed to her injuries and passes away. The investigation was immense. In many homicide cases, the first suspect is a spouse, and that was the case here. Jessica's then-boyfriend, a man named Travis Sanford, was incarcerated at the time of Jessica's murder. With him quickly out of the way, the investigation eventually led to another man, someone named Quentin Tellis, a 27-year-old man who was said to be romantically involved with Jessica and had quite the record. He was also convicted on the murder of another woman, Ming Ching Hao, when he was discovered to be using her credit cards after she'd passed away. Quentin was connected to Jessica's case after the phone records show the two had been conversing over the course of two weeks. Quentin was connected to Jessica's case after the phone records showed that the two had been conversing over the course of two weeks. There were many things about these texts and also more surveillance footage that pointed to Quentin being responsible for what happened to Jessica. Firstly, he was the last person to text her the night she was murdered. Second, Quentin continued to change his story about what happened and what he was doing the day of the murder. 
It started with him claiming he'd been with her that morning, but when GPS data showed him with her that night around 7.30, he changed his story, saying they were together until 7 p.m., after which a friend picked him up. This friend was questioned and denied picking up Quentin. The friend was at a football game in Nashville that night, and Quentin's attendance couldn't be verified, shattering his alibi once again. Finally, surveillance footage from the gas station showed him there around 15 minutes after Jessica was murdered. Quentin's final story claims the two drove to his house, not far from the gas station she'd stopped at the night of the murder, and they sat in the driveway listening to music before she left around 8 p.m. She was found on fire just moments later. Police have said it's incredibly unlikely that she met someone else in that small frame of time, especially someone who would have sent her car into flames. Furthermore, location data again showed that her car was driven out to the area it was found around 7.30 p.m. Additionally, Quentin's DNA was taken and matched to DNA found on Jessica's car keys. Lastly, surveillance showed another car, believed to be Quentin's sister's, driving out to where Jessica's car was found around 7.50 p.m. From what I've read online, this is a very solid timeline of events from what police believe happened. Police say that Quentin was in the car with Jessica when he attempted to have sex with her. Through the recovered texts between the two, many of which Quentin deleted the night of her murder, it showed that Jessica had denied his advances numerous times. As a matter of fact, she denied him four separate times on the night she was killed. At some point that night, Quentin possibly attempted to have sex with her, and she refused. Angry at her, Quentin strangles her until she passes out, and then drives her car up the road. Sometime later, he gets his sister's car and drives back, lights the car on fire in hopes of destroying any evidence. Quentin was indicted on charges of murder in February of 2016 and again in October of 2017. Both ended in a mistrial. As of now, juries have not been able to come to a conclusion about what happened to Jessica and if Quentin was truly involved. The only thing that I believe is holding them back is what Quentin's defense attorney continues to mention. From an article in the Jackson Sun, Eric set me on fire. Eric set her on fire. She didn't say any other name. She didn't mention any other person. Quentin is still being held in the Alcheta Correctional Center in Louisiana. Jessica's case has recently seen an influx of interest because of the murder of Travis Sanford, the man who was her boyfriend at the time of her murder. That case seems to be getting much farther than Jessica's, and I don't want to detract from her, so I will say if you believe you have anything that can help in the case against Quentin, don't hesitate to report it. You can call the Mississippi Crime Stoppers at 1-888-8-CRIMES. That's 1-888-827-4637. 2020 marked the sixth year since Myra Lewis, a two-year-old from Camden, 2020 marked the sixth year since Myra Lewis, a two-year-old from Camden, a town in Madison County, disappeared without a trace. It began on the 1st of March, 2014, when Myra and one of her sisters played together in the front yard around 10.30 that morning. 
Myra's mother, Erica, told the two to go inside where her husband Gregory was. He was inside at the time, tending to their one-month-old. Not long after telling the girls to head in, Erica headed to the store. Greg had no idea Myra was missing at this point in time. Now, police have said in an article from 10 days following the abduction that they're fairly certain what was taking place between 10.30 and 11 a.m. From the article, I don't want to get into too much of what transpired that day. There are statements from everyone involved that are pretty accurate with one another, Tucker says. We've put together a timeline of events on those statements. We feel pretty comfortable saying that Myra was last seen about the hours of 10 and 11 a.m., so that's what we're going on until anything changes it. Even so, an Amber Alert was said not to have been issued until the following day. The day of the abduction, the family began searching all over, trying to figure out where Myra could have been. From a 2019 article, the husband told reporters he looked for Myra on an ATV and tried to track her with the family dogs, which were not trained to track people. Later, police canines were brought in and they were unable to locate Myra. The search for Myra began at least four or five hours after the toddler went missing. Officers from several agencies combed the property surrounding the family's home in a pond across the street. There was no sign of Myra. The following day, the Amber Alert was released. As time takes on, more steps are taken to find Myra, or at least find a lead that pans out. On the 10th of March, the FBI posts a $20,000 reward for information that leads to Myra being returned. Three days later, the pond across the road is dragged for a second time, and nothing is found. In April of 2014, Sheriff Randy Tucker held a press conference about Myra's abduction in hopes of sparking a new interest. He said, We need some help. We're asking you guys to keep the story alive and keep her picture out there. Someone is going to match up. Later in October, numerous psychics came forward and filed reports with the Madison County Sheriff's Department, and all the sites mentioned of those reports were searched, leading, unfortunately, to nothing. One of the final updates came on November 21st, when another press conference was held to report that nothing more was found. The most recent report I can find comes from May of last year. This is what Sheriff Tucker said to WAPT News. The home where Myra was taken is now vacant, and the family left no forwarding address. Sheriff Tucker even said that if something were to come out of this case, they would have no way to contact them about it. Even so, he said this case isn't cold and won't be as long as he is on the force. So, if you believe you have anything that can help the police in this case, don't wait and call the Madison County Sheriff's Office at 601-859-2345. Lee's case begins on the morning of August 27, 1992. It was on the 100 block of Honey Locust Drive in Tupelo, Mississippi, where Lee's mother, Vicki, last saw her. On this day, Vicki says goodbye to her daughter around 7.35 before leaving for work. Lee was sent to attend an open house for her school a few hours later with her grandmother tasked with picking her up. This was the first time Lee was ever left home alone. 
She was 13 years old. Around an hour following Vicky leaving the house, she began to get worried about Lee because of the heavy storms moving in with Hurricane Andrew. Vicky called the home at 8.30, but no one answered. She tried one more time, but when Vicky still didn't get an answer, she headed home to make sure Lee was okay. Upon returning home, she found the garage door open and the light was on. This would mean the door had been activated only a few minutes prior to her arrival. The door leading into the house had been left unlocked. Vicky searched the house for Lee, but there was no sign of her. At 9 a.m., she called the police. Given the door was unlocked, there was no sign of forced entry, though there was plenty of evidence inside of the house to indicate a struggle took place. Firstly, there were numerous bloodstains on many of the walls in the house, a doorframe, which also held hair believed to be Lee's, the carpet, and the bathroom countertop. From the hallway into the living room and to the back door, there was a trail of blood as well. Additionally, one of Lee's nightgowns and bras was discovered in her bedroom, also said to be stained with blood. In the bathroom, police noticed signs of what looked to be an attempt at cleaning, but no rag or towel could be found. Many of Lee's belongings were missing from the home as well. Her reading glasses, shoes, some of her underclothes, and a sleeping bag were said to be missing. Bloodhounds attempted to track her scent, but given the weather conditions, the search was inconclusive. A month passed, and for some time, it seemed nothing would come of Lee's case. That was until the envelope addressed to Lee's stepfather, B. Yarbrough, appeared in the mail. The stepfather and Lee's mother had separated a few months before this abduction took place. On the outside, aside from the name, were six stamps, twice as many as needed, and the street name was misspelled H-O-N-Y-L-O-C-U-S-T. Finally, it was postmarked Boonville, Mississippi, which is a town about 30 miles from the home in Tupelo. The stamps were wet with water rather than saliva, so no DNA could be recovered. Furthermore, there were no fingerprints or DNA discovered on the glasses or inside of the envelope, so police have stated that they believe it was simply meant as a distraction. There was no letter and no call for ransom, and so the case fell to the wayside once more for 14 months. After that time, a skull was discovered by a farmer in a soybean field, and while it was initially identified as Lee, that was later retracted and the skull was given a different identity. Since that, there have been no big breaks, but there are some things of interest worth noting. I want to be clear that I'm not accusing anyone of anything, I'm simply stating facts about the case. While there are not many suspects here, the family was the main focus for some time. Lee's mother, Vicky, was given three separate polygraph tests and failed each one. Of course, these wouldn't be able to be used in court, so take it with a grain of salt. Also, as of now, she has not been declared a suspect. Vicky has said she believes a man named Oscar Kearns, also known as Mike, is responsible for Lee's abduction. She said he knew the family and was trusted enough to be let into the home without issue. Furthermore, nine months after Lee's abduction, he was arrested after abducting and raping a 15-year-old girl in her home in Memphis. He was sentenced to eight years, only serving four. Upon his release, he kidnapped a married couple, raped the wife, and was sent back to prison. He was released in March of 2019.
Lee's father and stepfather have been questioned by police and both passed polygraph tests. Her stepfather has passed away, but the father and mother are still alive. Vicky now resides in Michigan. Lee's father has stated he believes that someone in the family could be involved. If you do have any information that you believe can help convict the person who abducted Lee, don't hesitate. You can call the Tupelo Police Department at 662-841-6491. I want to take a second to say thank you to everyone who took some time out of their day to watch this video and give these cases a moment of your time. I also want to thank everyone who takes the time to pledge or become a member of the channel. That dollar a month will get you uh, videos a day or two in advance, and it really, really helps out. If you want to grab yourself something, you can head to the Teespring store and grab a t-shirt, a hoodie, a mug, a sticker. There's lots of really cool stuff over there, and it's an awesome way to get you something and support the channel. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.